My prayer for us tonight has been that this passage will wake us up from our distracted state and help us to see exactly what is going on around us. As we stand, let's pray. Father God, we come to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who lives forever and to whom all honour and glory are owed. Father, open our eyes tonight to see who you are, that we may trust you. Until that day, we will see you face to face. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Now imagine if you can, someone walking along the street texting their friend. They're so caught up in what they're doing that they don't notice the steps or the lamppost or the wall or the bike rack that they're walking towards and even a canal up ahead that they're about to fall into. It's easy, isn't it, to be distracted? But it can be dangerous, especially if you step in front of that car doing 40 miles an hour. My task tonight, however, is not to warn you of the danger of not looking where you're going when you're texting, as important as that may be. I would, however, like you to keep that image in your mind as we go through what we're doing tonight. What I do want to do is to help explain that reading we had from Revelation chapter 5 and to show you a few of the ways that you can respond to what God is saying to us from his word. So grab a Bible, if you haven't done so already, and turn back to page 1030 so you can follow along. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5. I've had the privilege of spending quite a lot of time studying this incredible part of the Bible as I prepared for tonight, and I'm convinced that every one of us, and it brings every one of us a very serious warning. You see, it can be so easy to walk through life caught up in the detail and so distracted by them that we fail to engage with the reality of what is going on around us. Walking into a lamppost might be funny, at least for those watching, but the spiritual equivalent of that, of living our lives without reference to the fact that God is on the throne and that one day we'll need to, we will meet him face to face, is no joke. And my prayer for us tonight has been that this passage will wake us up from our distracted state and help us to see exactly what is going on around us. Let me say two things about the context of this chapter as we begin. First, you need to keep in mind that the book of Revelation was written to Christians who were struggling. Turn back just one page to chapter 1 and verse 9. The Apostle John, who wrote down the words of this book, did so while on exile in the Greek island of Patmos. He was there because of, he was preaching the word of God. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 contain letters from Jesus to seven churches in that area, and we see two things. Firstly, they were struggling with sin, and secondly, some were suffering for their faith, even to the point of death, because they belonged to Jesus and they spoke about him to others. 
And one of the key issues is, will they survive? Will they persevere till the end? Will they keep going? You see that quite clearly if you look at chapters 2 and 3, because every one of those letters contains a promise from Jesus that can be claimed by those who conquer. You see that phrase used over and over again. Let me show you just one as an example. Look at, turn back over to 1030 in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. And you see here, typical of all of the letters in chapters 2 and 3, we read these words. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So the issue is, will they continue? Will they survive? But that verse leads us neatly on to the second thing we need to bear in mind about this context. Chapter 5 is actually the second half of a vision that begins in chapter 4, verse 1. So have a look at that. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John is being ushered up into the very presence of God the Father and he describes for us in chapter 4 in the symbolic language that is typical of this book what he sees. He sees a throne, a throne that speaks of the awesome power and majesty of God. The God who sits at the centre of the universe. The Lord God Almighty, who lives forever and ever and who is surrounded by unending praise. John is describing to us what he could see. He describes for us an indescribable God. Yet we see clearly, as it says in chapter 4 verse 11, that worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now around the throne of God, there were two groups, of, two groups are described for us who we need to know about because they reappear in chapter 5. Firstly, the four living creatures, and secondly, the 24 elders. Now their identity is debated, but I agree with those who see them as an exalted order of angelic beings who, as the guardians of the throne, lead all the angels in worship and adoration of God. In other words, senior angels. <coughs> and so without further ado, let's read together the, the text of Revelation chapter 5. I want us to stop as we go along to pick out five key lessons that we need to take note of. You can write those on the back of your service sheet as we go. Five key theological truths as we go through Revelation chapter 5. So, Revelation chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. John saw that in the almighty God's hand there was a scroll with writing on both sides and locked with seven seals. The contents of the scroll were secret and they contained God's plan for history and the end of the world. Everything would happen in the future 
as he had decided. And nobody could know what was in God's plan unless someone breaks those seals and opens the scroll. And that's the first truth. Firstly, our sovereign God holds the destiny of the world in the palm of his hand. It's like that old song says, he's got the whole world in his hand. And then John saw that strong angel who asked in a loud voice, who can open the scroll? Who can break the seals? And the sound of this angel's voice went out to the ends of space and heaven and the earth. And so this almighty cosmic search began. But it showed up a massive problem. In everything that God had created, in the whole world, nobody could open the scroll. There was no angel who was good enough. There was no man or woman who earned the rights to open it. So nobody could read what was in that scroll. The silence of heaven testified to the sinfulness of mankind. And that's the second truth I want to draw out. Before God, our sin makes us utterly helpless, hopeless. You see, no one is worthy, not one. And that made John so sad that he cried. Verse five, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One of the elders spoke to John and told him not to weep because there was someone who could open the scroll and who would break those seven seals. The elder used two special names to describe him, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, both references from the Old Testament. As you'll know, the nation of Israel grew from the 12 sons of Jacob. Each son's family became a tribe of Israel. And in Genesis 49, when Jacob blessed his sons, when he blessed his son Judah, he called him a young lion. And he promised that a great king would come from his tribe who would rule the earth. That king would be known as the Messiah. The Old Testament also spoke of a king who would come from the root of David. In other words, one of the descendants of David. The king would be even greater than David and would come to save them. Both of these are descriptions of the same Messiah. And the elder says, behold, it's an old fashioned word maybe, but it just means stop and look. Here is the one who can do what no one else in the whole of creation can do. Here is the lion who has conquered, look. And it's the most dramatic moment in the whole of this vision. You almost imagine the spotlight moving across the stage, drawing our attention to the one that the elder is pointing to. Maybe a drum roll. And what does John see? Look at verse six. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. If you've not guessed it already, who John sees is King Jesus, standing next to God on the throne. But Jesus didn't look the way you'd expect a king to look. He was not like a lion, 
but a lamb. And get rid of any images you have right now of cute and cuddly little lambs. In this vision, the lamb looked like it had been dead, but it's now alive. And the marks of that death were still there. And it would have brought to mind the image of the lamb sacrificed in ceremonies at the Jewish temple. It's a surprising scene. Normal lambs, of course, would have two horns, but this one had seven. And number seven in the Bible, especially in Revelation, often means that something is perfect or complete. And a horn is a symbol of power. Put those together and the point is obvious. Jesus, the lamb, had perfect power. He may look like a dead lamb, but he was most certainly still powerful and divine. And so that lamb steps forward and takes the scroll from the right hand of God. And that's the third point that we see that's so key from this passage. The slaughtered lamb of God reigns as the sovereign Lord of all. And that's the greatest news in all the world. Verse 5, the elder said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep no more. Finally has come the only one who has ever conquered over sin, over Satan and death. How? By suffering death as a lamb. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, had not only endured death in our place, he defeated death by his power. He bears the scars of death, yet he's sovereign over death. He died, but he overcame death. And now, as we remember on this Easter day, he's alive and he will always live. As the words of that song say, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands in his side, those wounds still visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As soon as that lamb takes the scroll, those four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and they worship the lamb. And what's striking about this is that they do exactly the same thing in chapter 4 to God the Father. Christ the lamb is one with the Father. Jesus is God. And in the hand of the elders are the golden bowls full of incense, the prayers of the saints, what seems so apparently useless on earth is still precious in heaven. And next, the elders and the four creatures sing a new song to the Lamb about what the Lamb had done, about the way that the Lamb had earned the right to take the scroll, about the way the Lamb had done what nobody else could do, because he alone was able to break the souls. He alone was worthy. Why? Because of all that he had done in saving us from the punishment that we deserved for our rebellion against God the Father. 
And when he died, he took the punishment that we deserved on himself. As it says in Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus, by his death has brought men and women from all the countries of the world by his blood. He'd given his life and he died as a sacrifice for us. And that's the fourth truth. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As it says in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And all who believe in Jesus and who trust in his death for them are part of his kingdom and will rule with him. That is the awesome news that we'll remember later as we share in the Lord's Supper. And death couldn't keep him. Jesus rose from the dead as we celebrate today. Let's look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And so we reach the amazing climax of the vision. Countless numbers of angels joining this choir of those already praising the Lamb. They surround the throne of God and with loud voices they sing to praise Jesus. They sang that the Lamb deserves to have seven qualities of power and wealth and wisdom, strength, honour, glory and praise. And they praise him because he has all of those things. He's always had them as a son of God. But by dying on the cross and rising again from death in order to save the whole of the world, he's, as it were, earned them afresh. And as he came to save the whole world, he obviously now deserves the praise of all the world. And so all people everywhere praise him. Every creature that God had created, join in the song of praise to God the Lamb. It reminds me of what we read in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. and Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God father and so our fifth and final point is that jesus is worthy he's worthy of all our praise it's an amazing passage and we've in some ways just brushed over the surface of it but to end with i just want to ask the question what does this mean then for us and it might be that you are like that image we began with of someone so engrossed in texting that they fail to realize what's coming up ahead But there is a God on the throne, and he does hold the destiny of the world in the palm of his hand. 
And one day we will all stand in front of that throne and face his judgment. Are you ready for that day? Have you allowed Jesus, the Lamb of God, to deal with your sin and the punishment you deserve? If not, then maybe today, of all days, is the day to do that. Come and talk to me afterwards or pick up a copy of Why Jesus from the welcome desk at the back. It's a booklet that's free and helpful. Or uh, join the Christianity Explored courses that will be beginning soon and the details are in the leaflets in the service papers you were given as you came in. But remember too that this book was written for those struggling with sin, Christians struggling with sin and facing persecution. And in that context, it's very easy to get caught up in the detail, to be distracted by those things and to face the spiritual equivalent of walking into the canal or a lamppost. What we need, what we all need, is a vision of God that allows us, forces us even, to engage with the reality of what's going on in the world. To, as it were, look up so that we can see what is ahead. To churches about to enter a period of severe testing and persecution, this declaration of God's unlimited strength and power would bring them strength and encouragement. Surely the purpose of all of this is to remind those who are about to suffer that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. They needed that reminder and so do we. And this vision of God also enables us to escape temptation and to resist sin. When we see so clearly the one who has won that battle against sin himself, it gives us the confidence that we need in troubled times to see that there remains a hope that is steadfast and sure. And we can be confident that it is God himself who will enable us to persevere to the end, to resist sin and to endure persecution. Remember that question at the beginning, will we conquer, will we continue to the end? Jesus says of those who trust in him, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. That's John chapter 10, verse 28, one of my favorite verses. But how, how does Jesus preserve and protect us? How does he bring to completion the work that he has begun? Well, he says to all of us, like he said to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The Lord Jesus gives us a vision of himself And that is how he enables us to persevere to the end. And not just to persevere, not just to survive, but that vision of Jesus enables us to be willing to lay down our very lives if need be, to tell places as far remote as Afghanistan about Jesus. So let's respond by trusting in him. Let's respond by living for him. But most of all, let's respond by praising him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross on our behalf. Thank you that he rose from the dead and conquered sin and conquered death. And that now for those of us who trust in him, 
you've made it possible for us to reign with you, to approach your throne with confidence. Father, we pray that you'd put a song of praise on our hearts and on our lips. And Father, that you would enable us to keep trusting in you till that day when we'll see you face to face. Father, we pray that you'd never let us forget who you are, that we may honour you and trust you as you deserve. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.